Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and I'm thrilled to be joined once again on the show this year by Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker. Louisa, thank you for being back. We were both in D.C. when we last recorded, I think in February or so, in my apartment. Yeah, it was right early days of the pandemic. I know. And yeah, maybe like early March even. It was like right when things, we sort of saw it on the horizon. Now, I don't even have that apartment anymore. <laughs> and I, you're living in D.C. more full time now, and life has changed a lot. And we are currently doing this from the same cities, different parts of D.C. on Zoom. So, Louisa, thank you for being one of these Zoom calls. I will look forward to most today of my probably seven or eight Zoom calls today. Poor Ben. <laughs> so you have this piece that came out today in The New Yorker, uh, which I know you've been working on for a long time. It's a very comprehensive piece about... Basically everything that's happened since we last podcasted, uh, and I also want to—I will thank you again for this throughout the show. But you were also kind enough to come on a roundtable show we did after the US Open press conference that day, which I wound up having to scrap because I waited like forty-eight hours, and a lot of things which you described the piece happened, which changed the tennis world significantly in that time, namely the Adria Tour uh, sort of derailing. So I'm curious for you. What you were, as you were trying to process tennis, I don't think you've written too much about tennis during this time period. So as you were trying to synthesize and process tennis and everything that's happened in tennis for the last five months, just describe the challenge of that, of, of trying to figure out where to start, what to include, how to how to make it all make sense as a, as a writer, writing for, I'm guessing, largely a non-tennis audience. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the piece looks very different than what I had originally envisioned. Um, you know, I mean... It, it's sort of the story of, you know, the pandemic for me, <laughs> what I what I originally imagined, um, you know, my life was going to look like um, back in March is not at all the case. <laughs> you know, in, in March, I, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to write a piece about, you know, about these different parts of the tennis ecosystem and how they're, you know, how they exist during the during the pandemic, because during the shutdown, because I, ha- I had, you know, obviously a sense that tennis is a very kind of fragmented sport in a lot of ways. And that the experience of a top player is not at all like the experience of a double specialist, which is not at all the experience of a lower ranked player, which is not at all experience of a coach or an umpire or that there's a sort of like great diversity of experiences. So I was originally going to do this kind of like daisy chain kind of vignette anecdotal piece, um, which I did these little portraits of people. And my original idea had been to like situate each, each person at, you know, at Indian Wells when they learned that the tournament had been canceled. And that was the piece I set about to write. And actually that was the piece I originally did write. (laughs) I mean, this piece has gone undergone like many, many, many revolutions. (laughs) You know, there was interest in that. And I was sort of pretty happy with that approach and I think that actually one of the underlying ideas of the piece is that there is this kind of, you know, this, there's, like I said, this like fragmentation. And that was definitely reflected in that piece as well. But what happened was that like actually things started happening. Um, and what you were describing in terms of like us recording a podcast and then immediately having to scrap it because, you know, just things changed so fast. That was actually the experience of this piece as well. Um, you know, we were set to, we were talking about running it at the end of May um, kind of in anticipation of some news of tennis coming back or, you know, not coming back or anything. And then, and then the protests happen. And obviously the gravity of, 
that, um, I mean, there was none of that in the piece at that point, obviously. So the gravity of that made us think, well, maybe we should, you know, hold off for a couple of days. This is not like a, you know, a timely piece. It can run whenever. So let's, let's wait until, and maybe also, you know, think about incorporating some of tennis's response and things like that. And then, you know, so I kind of got that piece ready, <laughs> you know, we were ready to go with that. And then the U.S. Open announced, or there was like rumors about the U.S. Open announcement. So I was like, well, let's hold off for that. And then, um, you know, kind of reworking it each at each stage, like rewriting it and reworking it and talking to more people and, you know, doing a little more reporting and also just rethinking more and more about what this, like this process has said about tennis. And so, yeah, I mean, this piece has undergone many massive revisions um, not just because of like the quality, you know, of writing, which, you know, any piece undergoes a lot of work, but this one, I felt like I kept having to scrap it and start again because something would happen. And, and the, the thing that was heartening though, was that there was never something that made me, I mean, there was always something I was learning from things along the way, but there was never something that made me think I'm completely wrong. <laughs> you know, like my approach is completely off, but it did become less and less about kind of individual actors and more and more about how tennis kind of sets up people to be individual actors. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting process because like Grigor was actually one of the people that I was originally going to to focus on. And so I talked to him in May back when he was in, you know, still in Indian Wells. And of course he becomes this kind of pivotal figure in in tennis, you know, during this time. So when he tests positive, so that was like, that was a little bit of luck, you know, that I had had talked to him. Um, But there were other people that, you know, had I thought really kind of interesting insights and um that's a rambling answer to a rambling piece no, that, <laughs> I think it's been a, I think it's been a rambling time I think you did a pretty good job of making that all intensely yeah you had talked to Grigor you you sort of hit at the sort of the selfishness theme which is something we've talked about definitely on the show in the past months about tennis players being self-centered and how that reflects on things and how institutionalized that selfishness I don't know if that's the right word how like intrinsic I guess is a better word how intrinsic that selfishness can be to tennis and, I, you know, it's interesting because yeah, I think, you know, I think we have to be careful about using the word selfish because it has such strong ethical and moral, you know, implications. Right. And you could use the word self-centeredness. Yeah, which I, I have used sometimes. Thing. Yeah. But the problem is that, like, self-centeredness also does encourage selfishness. I mean, there's sort of like a thin line between these things. So one of the difficulties is, and this is part of the challenge of tennis in particular, is, you know, is that it does encourage self-centeredness, which can shade into selfishness. Um, it doesn't always, you know, people can act in really good faith, you know, but it's a sport that's sort of set up to um, encourage you to focus on yourself because you are, you are the product and you are the goal and you are the, you know, the payer and the payee. And, you know, if you're a tennis player, you are the person who's out there and you feel an immense amount of responsibility often to your your family, your country, you are have to pay your coach's salary, you have to pay your trainers, you know, you have to pay plane tickets, you have to, I mean, it's just like an immense amount. And then you also often know that, you know, your family sacrificed a lot to put you in that position. And that can be an immense amount of pressure. And, you know, if you have to think about any of that stuff, you would just, you just collapse and be crushed into a million pieces. And so the way that a lot of tennis players deal with it is just to like, learn how to yeah, focus on themselves. And everybody is telling them to do that, by the way. You know, like everyone is like, you need to worry about you, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's the best. I mean, people will, t- tennis players will tell you that, like that's great advice they got, you know, from stars is like, you focus on yourself. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I talked to um, Valverde, who is this, you know, a 
a top coach and that's the advice he gives his players, you know, it, it's not in his best interests often, but, um, you know, he understands that one ingredient to success is this kind of like intense, um, individualism and it's an individual sport. I mean, that's the deal. And it's not unique to tennis, you know, like I would say that, you know, a runner is off. This is, this can be true of a Olympic athlete for sure. It can be true of also of a team sport athlete, but the difference is that if you're a basketball player, you're not paying your coach, you know, you're, you have teammates that you're accountable to. You're not paying the team doctor. You're not setting up your own flights. You know, you're not arranging what hotel you're going to stay in. You're not. And obviously, players hire people to do this if they can afford it precisely for this reason. And so it's just a totally different individualistic dynamic. I was I wanted to get to that Valverde quote, which I think is one of the more striking parts of the piece, which comes pretty early in the piece, uh, where uh, Danny Valverde, who is currently coaching or co-coaching, I guess, two different players. He's coaching Stan Vavrinka and he's coaching Chris, uh, sorry, uh, Carolina Pliskova who are both, you know, top players for tens of millions of dollars. And he says uh, in a quote here, or your, your part is saying professional tennis tends to encourage a certain mentality. And then Valverde says the strength of the sport is that it's in, an individual sport and players have this selfish mindset, which is what makes them so good. Uh, he continues to be able to do everything. You have to be self-centered. And he, so he sort of uses both words. So I have, I have clarified what you were saying before. Like when I say, when I call tennis players self-centered, I think that's a fact. Yeah. I don't always mean it with negative connotation. The word in general parlance has almost always negative connotations right. being self-centered in tennis. There can be positives to it. But then the interesting thing is that, um, in this piece is that, well, one of the, and I've caught this with other coaches too, and they've had mixed takes on it. We had Sandra Zanevsko as another coach on the WTA on, on NCR during this time and she talked she was closer to Valverde than to my take I think probably on this which is that Valverde stopped being paid by his two top really high earning players during this time even though he was still consulting with them still working with them as best as he could from a distance and he said he didn't harbor any resentment for that he said um I want them I want them to be extremely selfish not in a selfish not selfish in a bad way to be focused on yourself not like distractions get in the way of your goals and I have to say, as as somebody just covering tennis and being around the sport and being around this world, who also stopped getting paid largely during this time, I I was very, I don't want to say taken aback because I wasn't surprised per se, but I was really struck by how quickly all the players stopped paying their coaches in March. Like the second tournaments stopped in Indian Wells, like the whatever sort of payroll department inside their heads or inside their their persons really ceased operations very quickly before almost anything else and how quickly they were to cut off people who have been working for them and working usually solely for them Valverde is a unique case because he has two players he works with most players at his level most sorry most coaches at his level only work with one player I was I was really struck by that and I, I was taken aback by that and, and disappointed I think fair to say by that that players didn't didn't have their coaches backs at a time when their coaches needed them just because the income had stopped on their end. For for and it could have been situational. There could have been certain players who make less money who I would have been fine with, but it went all the way to the top, and that really really struck me. I'm curious. Obviously, you're not really passing judgments on almost anything in this piece, but I'm curious what you made of that phenomenon of of coaches getting cut off so quickly by their players. At least ninety percent, which Valverde says, which I think is a conservative estimate, honestly. Yeah, I was surprised by it. I mean, I feel like a lot of people in this situation will go out of their way to pay their, you know, if you had a housekeeper coming exactly. and then you yeah. stop and then said, don't come, like still pay them. Right. <laughs> because yeah. that's, that sort of seems like the basically right thing to do. 
And you could say that, well, maybe you understand that that person needs the money more. But I think actually in some of these cases, the coaches really do need the money. And, you know, certainly a lot of players are in the position to pay them. Um, Not all of them are, which is another thing that the piece gets into. But um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things I'm also, though, was quite interested when I went into this piece is to what extent, like, the structure of something can influence the culture. Because I don't think that these players are, like, I mean, I, I totally get what Valverde is saying. It's, he's not saying these are bad people, you know, that they're sort of like these like venal, selfish people who are like counting their pennies, you know, during the pandemic, you know, when they have millions of dollars. I mean, I think that one of the things that happens is like there is a kind of, you know, a mentality that is encouraged by certain kind of policies or structures or, or you know, a sort of like general culture. And then people just tend to sort of um, not really stop and question it you know, because that's, that's their world. Um, and one of the things, like one of the larger things at one point, I kind of like play it out a little bit, but, you know, I was thinking a lot about like the different responses of different countries to the pandemic and different cultures, you know, within different countries and how often kind of political decisions that seem to have nothing to do with anything else often kind of play out in certain ways. I mean, here's, here's an example that might not seem relevant, but I lived in Massachusetts until a month ago and their masks were mandatory when you went outside. You know, if you went for a walk, wear a mask. Everybody in my neighborhood wore a mask. Everybody. I mean, it was pretty shocking when you saw someone not wear a mask going for a run or going for a walk, right? And at first I was like, wow, this seems a bit, back in March, I was like, this seems a bit extreme. It's really hard to run with a mask. Like, are we really going to do this? You know, but like then you do it and you feel like a you start to feel a, a sense of responsibility doing it, right? You feel like I'm wearing this mask, like everybody else is wearing this mask. And if I were, if I were not wearing this mask, I would be doing something disrespectful to my neighbors, you know, something that it, it's just like a little switch, you know, it wasn't something I was initially going to do. I was going to go for a run with a mask from the start, you know, I said, started doing that once everyone else was doing it, you know, and then, but that kind of like, that actually encouraged in me a feeling like this is actually a moral obligation I have. It wasn't something that was like born out of me. It was something that I, I learned in a way. And then I, I moved down to DC where it's not required to wear a mask when you go outside. And it's just a different feeling. Like, I mean, I walked around and I'm like, who are these people who think that they can just, you know, go for a walk and go for a run and like infect other people. And like, aren't they being like sensitive to other people? It's not like the people are actually any, different in a way like it's just that there's a there's a rule that is a good rule or a bad rule you know you can have a debate over that but like it encourages a certain kind of like attitude towards your neighbors you know and I I think about that a lot actually and about the different ways in which as I was writing this piece I had that in mind to just remember like oh you can be the same person in two different places you know and have a different kind of uh attitude you know that's somewhat somewhat encouraged by by a rule or by what other people are doing or whatever. We're all social creatures after all. And, and products of our environment. I exactly. Guess, I mean, and so, yeah, so I think that's yeah, a fair point that tennis players, you know, had they, and, the, and you get into this, I think pretty smoothly after that in the piece, the, the structural issues with tennis and how divided it is and how there's really a lack of any sort of central government to use that sort of, yeah. uh, in terms of what you're describing. Yeah. It's tricky. If I'm going to be like less cynical about it, I'm going to say that like, actually, you know, as Valverde says, like one of the strengths of the sport is, is, you know, individual achievement is that that's what people are after. I mean, you can go, if you want to again, draw like a, a kind of like broader, maybe somewhat irresponsible, but not totally untrue parallel. Like 
you know, in cultures where like individual achievement is celebrated over collective, you know, the health of the collective body, you know, that's a, there are certain consequences, like it can mean that, you know, in good times, you know, there's incredible innovation and incredible achievement and incredible like success. And then it means that when things are go wrong, people don't take care of each other as much as they don't just like naturally or automatically take care of or trust each other as much as they might. Yeah, no, it's just not how the sort of system is built in tennis. It's not built on people lifting each other up or built on, you know, looking out for each other in the group. You want people, you basically, as a tennis player, delight when half people have to leave the tournament because they lost. And yeah, exactly. And it's, you want to be good. the last if you're man alone, standing. You're, yeah. If you're alone in the locker room, you are succeeding. <laughs> right, exactly. So the, the more people are dropping around <laughs> you, which is maybe makes it one of the worst possible pandemic sports. It's just like, you know, you see other people's weakness as potentially your success. Yeah. And... That's a, a cool way to look at it. I do think it is where the tennis players as a sort of, and you know, I've said it's sort of like a long distance, no contact combat sport in a lot of ways. Like yeah. There is a very adversarial mindset to it. And I do think that can change. I do think that we're seeing that in, you know, a lot of the conversations are happening in other sports. And obviously, I know you're a general sports columnist for The New Yorker. The conversations are having around more collective action type stuff, even in like college sports, which is pretty unheard of. That's happening now in the U.S. with amateur athletes there. Um, or unpaid athletes, that how amateurish college forces is, is to be very debated. Uh, they're sort of sticking up for each other and having more solidarity now. We haven't really seen that effectively in tennis. We've seen occasional seeds of it from people like Vashik Pospisil, but never really a real groundswell. And I just think it's, yeah, it's, it's part of the culture of tennis. And it's part of the thing that drew me to tennis a lot as a player and as a writer. It's like this, you are out there and you are responsible for you. Like if you win, it's because you were better. If you lose, it's because you were worse than the opponent. And it's like, totally it's, it's what drew me to tennis. The accountability <laughs> of it is really satisfying to watch and to play. Yeah. And it, it just <laughs> sort of, I don't know if to call it like a, a libertarianist or whatever sort of political term you want to put on tennis, but like it, that does not, yeah, I think it's ill-suited for tough times when you're talking about trying to keep a community afloat. And I do think tennis at the same time does try to act like it's a, a family in some ways and other times really undermines that in various different ways. It's also really, I mean, it's a little bit confusing too, because at the same time that tennis is this kind of like radically individualistic sport, the, you know, national federations are not just in charge of putting on like, let's say the U S open, but in, in terms of like growing the grassroots game and getting kids to play. I mean, it's sort of this weird thing where it's like, if, if I'm going to take the side of the USTA right now, I'm going to say, well, you know, if we're in an argument with a player, so over how much, you know, prize money they should get, it's not like all of that prize money is going to Robert Kraft or, you know, the owner of the New England Patriots, you know, it's, it's, you know, they would say we're putting in millions and millions of dollars into the, you know, recreational leagues and, you know, growing the game in that regard. And so it's a weird sport in that way, too. It's like as if the NBA were sort of running all of the, like, youth leagues as well, you know, are sort yeah. of in charge of that way. Like, I mean, it's sort of, it's just, it's just different, but it's, it's different in ways that are sort of interesting to think about and do seem to have some sort of valence into our lives. So you gets into the sort of the Darwinism that quickly picks up, I guess, in the sports in this tough time. And yeah. you have this quote from, I think you, and you spoke to, I believe as well, Gabby Dabrowski, who tweeted in mostly all caps, uh, saying, uh, for me, a slam isn't a slam without qualifying doubles and mixed doubles. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth when so many players are against this event moving forward, and yet it's moving forward anyway. So it doesn't feel right here. 
Um, and we discussed, I think, I think we discussed on that show we did back after the press conference, we can get to the press conference a little bit later about the wheelchair attendance being canceled too, which I thought was like super indefensible because the wheelchair draw is so small. Well, it turns out it, it was indefensible because yeah, was it was, and, and, and they stopped defending it. They, they quickly turned around. And I was, yeah. I was texting, I was texting with Dylan Alcott during that time. And I was like, I have very few doubts that you guys are gonna get reinstated. Like, yeah. this is so clearly like, there's no logic behind this. And just, it was so clearly that, but qualifying and honestly almost any doubles i and i've talked to i was talking to noah rubin about this who's been one of the more outspoken guys but even i think he's enough of a pragmatist in some ways where he that sounded that sounded rude i, I don't say he's not a pragmatist most of the time but i'm saying he was enough of a pragmatist to realize like yes i fully understand the no qualifying thing like i completely get that that makes sense to me he wasn't really fighting for that but a lot of players throughout this whole time very quickly had the sort of a what about me mentality, which is their quote unquote selfish, self-centered attitude, self-preservation even at that point kicking in. And a lot of them, I felt like really sort of misunderstood their place on the ladder in a lot of ways. Like, no, I feel like if you look at, if you watch tennis on TV at a grand slam level and weren't paying close attention to what the commentators were saying, or maybe the occasional cutaways or really off peak coverage, you might not know there was doubles at a grand slam. Like, I mean, that's just not what, not what the sport is about. And so honestly, for me, and this is a whole different topic that I know Marion Bartoli got in trouble with during the, during the, uh, <laughs> during the stoppage. But if the U.S. Open had said, look, we need to cut down the number of people, we're not going to have doubles. Like, I would have been okay with that. That seems like a kind of natural rising of the tide that knocks, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, sinking of the ship that certain people have to get off first, who are just sort of weighing it down. Yeah, I mean, doubles, doubles seemed like that. Yeah, I know it's interesting. And and Gabby's actually someone that I I spoke to in my original for my original piece about different people. So, um before this happened. And you know, and again, it's not like Gabby is a kind of naturally selfish person. In fact, like most of what she was talking about to me was her work with spe- like kids in the Special Olympics. Like that's what yeah. she spent her time doing in the pandemic. So, it's not like, oh, this is a person who only thinks about herself like at all. But like in terms of tennis, like, yeah, I mean, this is what she's given her life to. She's, you know, one of the top doubles players in the world. And, you know, it's, it's natural in some ways, but also maybe not like, uh, doesn't make sense in terms of if the question is like, how do we keep tennis alive, <laughs> you know, through this time? How do we keep it as a, you know, I think the word that Steve Simon used when he was talking to Reem was viable, you know? I mean, basically it really did become clear that like, tennis is not going to be able to come back in the ways in which we all know it. So do we want something to come back to, you know, or do we want to, you know, I mean, obviously we have this great test case in the Adria tour of like what happens when you just pretend that nothing's wrong. <laughs> and guess Absolutely. what? That turned out really badly. <laughs> Absolutely. Spoiler it, it alert. It turned out so badly that it was interesting that like everyone else was able to dismiss it. Yeah, exactly. Because, They're like, we're going to be because, nothing because like they were this. so ex- they were so extreme. Yeah, on the lack of social distancing, on the complete bacchanalia of yeah. Adria Tour, that everyone else could be sort of like, well, we're taking we're different from Adria Tour in many ways. We can't even start to compare them, and I kind of agree with that. Yeah, because you never knew exactly which of Adria Tour's many, 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 many flouting <laughs> yeah, yeah. was what did it in. Uh, so you could definitely do something cleaner. I'm, I'm curious. Let's skip ahead a little bit to. Um, what's going on this week and last week with WTA coming back, um, which is not so much in your piece, but I'm curious about 
but because I know you've watched some mm-hmm. Lexington that's been going on in the Zoom press conferences with me sometimes. And um, Steve Simon was talking about having the tour come back and, and really compromising and saying, like, look, we wanted we initially when this started, we had this idea that, like, if everyone couldn't play, then we would not play. We'd wait for everyone to come back. And then WTA eventually was like, eh, you know, we're going to start the tour back and it won't be perfect, but we want to have opportunities for players. They came back with Palermo, which is, I think, exclusively a European field of that tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they came to Lexington, which is a very, very largely North American field, although some players from overseas have made it over to Lexington for sure in preparation for the two New York events that are coming up. Uh, I'm curious what you make of, of tennis, of women's tennis, because ATP is not back yet, right. of women's tennis uh, starting back like this and of if, if they made the compromise of that and if it's been the right choice and what it looks and feels like to, to watch it. A couple of layers to my thinking. I have a lot of misgivings about bringing sports back at all right now. Well, let me start yeah. by saying that um, because I think that, especially in the United States, like New Zealand wants to host the WTA event, like go for it. <laughs> you know, although New Zealand's going back on not lockdown too, I hear so. Um, you know, I mean, but only with New Zealand players. <laughs> And that's actually kind of what I was saying. Like, I think, um, you know, I think that that anything that involves a lot of travel and a ton of resources to keep it safe and, you know, potentially, you know, risks different communities and you have to bend local health rules for is is something that makes me really uncomfortable. I'm not saying that I don't think it should happen. I understand why they're doing it. And I think that if they can do it safely and they have the resources to do it, then I completely understand why they're doing it. And I definitely think that, yeah, I mean, I became pretty convinced as I was writing this piece that actually kind of the best way to do it is to do it regionally, which just totally cuts against what tennis is. Like tennis is a global sport and that's like the glory of it. You know, I love the fact that players are from all over the world and they travel all over the world, you know, bringing in different fans from all over different parts of the world. And like the stars are from, you know, far flung places. And I love that, you know, kind of like real geographic diversity. Um, But that doesn't make any sense right now. Like that just doesn't, you know, travel, like the traveling circus is just like not a model that is like set up for a global pandemic. And so I think that, you know, playing a European field, playing a European tournament with the European field makes sense. You know, if you're going to play in Kentucky, like it makes sense to bring in players from North America and not, you know, but obviously that leaves a lot of players out, you know? And so I get also why that's difficult. Um, and so I have a lot of sympathy for a lot of the people involved. I just don't think it's necessarily a good idea to, you know, go to the lengths that some of them are going to. And I, and I, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that the city open, you know, which obviously Ben has talked several times with, Mark I and the, you know, the director head of it or um, about the challenges of doing that and the the kind of opportunity that it represented, but it didn't work out precisely for this question because they couldn't figure out the travel rules. And I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of bending those rules, you know, because they're there for a reason. And I think it is significant that I think it's both significant that Palmero, um, you know, was a successful tour event. And also significant that they did bend the rules, you know, for Bulgaria and Romania and a player came from Bulgaria and tested positive. And it's great that they caught that immediately, right? Like, absolutely, like good on them, you know? And I'm like thrilled that no one else tested positive. And, you know, I think that they can like pat themselves on the back and say that was a successful tournament. But at the same time, like it does go to show that 
there's a reason, <laughs> you know, that those rules are there and we have to be careful and we have to be honest with ourselves about the risks that we're taking. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a really, I think these are really difficult questions and I don't presume to like know the answers to them. I just do think it's interesting that, you know, I think that we need to, I think we need to know what those questions and those risks are, you know, even as we're taking them or not taking them. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And it's interesting, my sort of, I'm still uncomfortable with feeling like sports are super frivolous uh, during this pandemic and that it's just not what we should pro- be prioritizing as a society when we still very much in the U.S. especially do not have this under control on any level. The deaths are still like about a thousand a day, I think, currently in the U.S. and still continuing to climb. And and I sort of applaud the cancellation of almost every tournament or event. Like the Big Ten just canceled football. I went to Michigan. I'm not a huge Big Ten football fan any longer or pay close attention to it, but I was like really like sort of proud of them. I was like, good for you for like not trying to put things at risk and not taking things really at risk. At the same time, I have started watching more and more of the sports that are happening, uh, NHL playoffs and NBA stuff that's going on. I'm a little bit inured to tennis also, or to other sports happening. Tennis is still newer to, to my conceptions of there's been fewer events and sort of not the big events yet. So it'll be interesting to see how it all looks and feels once Grand Slams start happening and the matches start getting more relevant. I don't know. It, it's just, it's a weird time, obviously, in a it's lot a of ways. It's totally weird Because time. just even Lexington, which has, is a super bizarre event because it's a city that was not on the tour as of just a couple months ago. It was not really on the horizon at all. There would be tennis in Lexington. And now it has this amazing field of the Williams sisters of Azarenka, Coco Goff. Sabalenka, those are the main, Stevens, uh, who's not, hasn't been playing great lately, but still a big name, all going to kind of middle of nowhere in the tennis landscape and in Lexington, Kentucky, and playing at a small club for very little prize money. There's like, it's smaller than international even used to be. I don't think there's many appearance feeds, honestly, either at this event, because I think people just really wanted to play. And yeah, and that's, it's it's just, it's just all the, all the metrics are new and it's hard to Watching it, it feels flat in a lot of ways, because also, because you're watching big players in some ways play important. That's a tournament that's not really results important to them, per se. I think it's a large part of it. And then also, there's no crowd. The risks and the rewards are all very different. Like, I'm not sure. I know what the risks are. I feel like I have a better sense of that. What the rewards are currently, I'm still trying to sort of calculate, because it's just a different sort of payoff you get, right? When it's not... The U.S. Open will not be like the U.S. Open. It won't be like every ad we see for the U.S. Open the past 10 years is all about like electricity of New York and the crowd and the buzz and the vibe. Like it will have almost none of that, right? And so if you take away that, what is the U.S. Open? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, and this is something that you and I have been talking about on our own. Like what what are the stakes? Yeah. You know, what are the stakes here and what does that matter? Um, and it's, it's a little bit difficult when, you know, well, on one side, the stakes are life and death, like literally, yeah. you know, there is this kind of, I know one thing that NCAA is concerned about and, um, Dr. Brian Hanline is both the medical chief medical person for the NCAA and for the USTA and US Open. So he's obviously very kind of busy right now. You know, I know that one thing that a lot of, you know, certainly the big 10 was concerned about is that there's this heart condition that. A lot of, when I say a lot, it's not like I'm talking about like majority or anything, but that some people who have either mild or even asymptomatic cases of COVID, they end up developing this like inflamed heart, you know, kind of acute mardio, uh, I'm not a doctor, I'm going to. Myocardial something, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, so yeah, this like kind of like 
hurt thing. Hurts are really important for athletes, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a real risk both for the athlete and for their team members and their families. And also for the people that they walk by in the airport and are sitting next to on the airplane. And, you know, I mean, it's not just like, again, like, it's not like we're beaming them in, you know, we're teleporting them in from, you know, wherever in the world. Um, They actually have to get on a plane and go to a and sometimes they have to get on several, you know, Patrick Mortoglu, like, I guess, yeah. tweeted his schedule and he was taking like four flights to get into Lexington. And part of me was like, oh, it's, I, I think he was doing that to show like the lengths you have to go to, to get to this tournament or whatever. But I was just thinking like, oh my God, he's going to come into contact with so many different people, <laughs> you know? And this goes to what you were hinting at, or not hinting at, but what you said before about the quarantine rules being relaxed for tennis, which is something I've been super uncomfortable with throughout. Exactly that example. We, I don't think they've ever officially confirmed, but they basically said that one player pulled out of qualifying because she tested positive, and only one player pulled out of qualifying because he looked at the draw in Palermo, and it was uh, Victoria Tomova, who's a Bulgarian player. So we, I think it's safe at this point to assume those are the same person. And yeah, I just, I and every time there's, they just recently, it's in your piece, the Italian government gave some sort of waiver, it seems like, to for players to return from the U.S. to go to Italy without having a quarantine. They still have to get tested, I believe, upon arrival, but to not have to do the the normal quarantine to take care of the incubation period, which we all are familiar with at this point. And it just seems like a huge rule bend, and everyone's everyone's, uh, exposure clock will realistically get reset the second you go to an airport. Like, you can't stay. That's that's crazy to me to think that, like, you're not starting from zero once you get on a plane. It's like, it's really hard to know some things though, because at the same time, I guess the idea is, well, first of all, these tournaments, I mean, you can't, it would have to be regional if they didn't have these travel exemptions. Yeah. Like if they didn't have these quarantine exemptions, it's like if you played in the U.S. Open and you went at all far, you could not play at the French Open. They're just too close. Like if you were in the second, if you were in the French Open final, you can't then fly to, I'm sorry, if you're in the U.S. Open final, you cannot fly to Paris and quarantine for two weeks. Like that's just not actually possible. Literally not possible. And, and this goes to the the tough nature of the individual sport in this case, because like you said, everyone is booking their own flights and their own itinerary. In exactly. a normal team sport, the whole team's been moving en masse as a team on a private aircraft, usually. Yeah. Maybe not not always transatlantic flights on, on yeah. team sports, but I mean, you, yeah, so I guess that is true. Together. Like if you're yeah. if if you are Novak Djokovic, you can afford your own private plane to fly into Paris and you know, that it was less risky and all this stuff. So I mean they're all but again that speaks to like again, everybody has different individual circumstances and that's one of the difficult things here is that there are people who are flying private and you know And and this goes to my idea of like I just think that what you said before, like this traveling circus that is tennis, this global thing, that's one of its huge strengths almost always normally it's around the world it's from the world for the world around the world and now all of those things that are strengths are, i think are huge risks and weaknesses during a pandemic is that it can't be in one place like we're seeing watching the nba every single game is in those two courts in orlando and you get very used to those settings and everyone's there and nhl similarly every eastern conference game is in toronto and every western conference game is in edmonton and the finals the final two rounds will all be in edmonton also and you get used to that, and that sort of seems like they're really minimizing the risk there. But tennis, half the players who were playing in Lexington would have lost first round and been told to get on the next flight or to get get in their cars and go wherever else. And it's just like this actual structure of how the tour works and how a player's schedule will work 
intrinsically hasn't changed as fundamentally as it has in those league bubble sports. And or if it has, it's like not, I mean, I feel for like someone, a player like Kanta, you know, who she said yeah. in her press conference that her, she had flown from London, what's well, London to Chicago and then rented a car and driven to Lexington and then was driving to New York and she yeah. lost in the first drive. I mean, just like, it's insane. I've, I think I said this on the last episode, I believe, but I just feel like this method, this model of tennis, just even as tournaments, yeah. of single division tournaments, does not make sense to me during a pandemic. That you're like you're putting all these players, and, and this gets a little bit to like the hazard pay notion, which you, yeah. which got shot down quickly by USCA. But all these players are making these real sacrifices to and risks to come play a tournament, right? And you're eliminating half of them on the first two days. Yeah, that that just doesn't seem like a, a, a sound structure for a sport during a pandemic. I mean, I guess the idea was, I mean, let's say that we knew that there was no vaccine coming in the next year. OK. Yeah. And so we we're going to say 2021. Do we want tennis or not? OK. And then we say, OK, yes, we want tennis. Would it make sense to then say, like, we're just going to go to Melbourne <laughs> and right. we're just going to live there for a year? You know, and like have four Grand Slams and some like exhibitions and like put everyone in a bubble and maybe... Or maybe do it on a like four month system, so everybody arrives two weeks early, play a warm up tournament, and then you play a slam, and then like yeah. you know, and nobody's gonna make as much money as they normally do, but like, and like little pop up leagues in between or something, or like yeah. for you know tiebreak tens or UTS or whatever, or world team tennis, whatever wants to pop up. It would the be interesting thing, to see yeah. if like if people could get together. I mean, that's always the challenge. This is the challenge here. Like, who would be willing to give up? everything you have to give up in order to say like, okay, we're going to try something new here that is completely different than what we've tried before. It's the power structure is so disparate. Like you said, I mean, everything is so spread out. Everyone has their own little fiefdom in tennis. They're, they're so passionately and doggedly defending their part of the turf. That makes it very tough to have any sort of overarching cooperation. That does feel like something that would be a big win for tennis. I don't see how it happens, honestly, but some sort of takeover for there to be some sort of, the labor cup just takes over 2021 or something (laughs) honestly for someone to even and obviously did not one of the things that canceled earliest was davis cup with the uh with their group which i'm blanking on now it's your rpk's group cosmos uh they uh they canceled pretty early they did not work well but if there was somebody who was like some you know i don't know bezosian figure Mm -hmm. who could step in in tennis and just like buy tennis and be like i'm gonna unite the kingdom and just like right exactly and come in and and buy everything and make it run more in a more orderly fashion i think that would be uh scary obviously because i have, have a totalitarian tennis yeah. system but it would also the rewards or the upside that could be potentially very very high because it's such cross purposes so so often right now. what if we just brought tennis back to indian wells where it all started and just did that next year i think that would be fine i mean like obviously when you're talking about australia like obviously then you start thinking problems like a whole year in australia like the time zone would be terrible for a lot for of you from, <laughs> great from, for, for east coast americans yeah for australia would be great um but yeah yes yeah, so there's a lot of different a lot of different I can of, come up of with course that is and like but it, this idea. is this actually goes speaks to how hard it is because your mind goes like oh the time zone's bad for me you know yeah, like, exactly it's good no, for it, australians that's, that's, that's but that's but it's natural right like that's what yeah. that's what we do you know we're like well i have to cover this <laughs> yeah no, absolutely. Um, but i mean this is one of the reasons why it's um it's really really hard to think about and you know and it's tricky because again like the the reason that part of the reason that this stuff is so piecemeal is that tennis has made really kind of like important advances. Like one of the reasons that, 
you know, we're not looking at, we could look at the NBA and the WNBA, right? They're both in bubbles in Florida. And in the NBA, like the gripe is that like in the first three meals were in, came in little styrofoam packages and the players were like, what? You know, meanwhile, like in the WNBA, they arrive and they have like mousetraps and bud bugs because just like the life is so different, you know, for the, because they're totally separate, you know, entities. But, you know, we're talking about how like, the relative, I mean, if we're going to step back and take a bigger perspective, the fact that there's a WTA and an ATP and that they have as much as equality as they do is a good thing. The fact that they can be fighting in this way is like a sign of progress and it's kind of piecemeal way and they've developed, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't stop and say like, this isn't right. And like, we need to sort of push forward, but it is a reminder that like, there are kind of good reasons why some of this stuff has developed in addition to the bad ones. Yeah. No, women have a seat at the table in tennis, and that's a yeah. relative, pretty unique thing in major sports. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk about the U.S. Open press conference a little bit, which we talked about <laughs> back that day in June, uh, recording episode first, just because a lot of it has sort of shifted. Um, yeah. And we, I mean, I think you sort of mentioned me in the piece, which was not necessary. But um, I, I'm also where... going to say, like, Ben was also one of the people I was originally going to write about. <laughs> I was in a vignette originally. <laughs> and Reem, I know, too. I know Reem got called from, like, a, a... Anyway, I don't even get into that. Uh, but she got a fact checker asking about her ukulele. Play. I know. I was, I was really like, oh. sad not to include the fact that Reem learned the ukulele, uh, you know, uh, during her. But she's great. You should watch Reem's ukulele videos on Instagram. So the U.S. Open does this press conference basically just to say we're planning on happening or we're happening. They were very declarative about it in that June press conference, which I always took to mean at the time, like them saying, we're not canceling. Like we're still going yeah. ahead as of now. We're reminding you. It was a little bit like the, yet. um, the sort of like release of entry lists. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was provisional, but now, now it seems they're getting close enough. It's more likely than not the US open will happen. I'm still, yeah. I, I'm still in various ways waiting for the bottom to fall out on a lot of these things. And I think actually the French open could be in more trouble. Now there's more, French rules about crowds or whatever they're coming. I'm not sure exactly what's happening in France, but everything is tenuous until it happens. I feel like in this day and age, as we know from that episode we recorded and then couldn't use basically 36 hours later. So I'm curious what you made of the the tone of that U.S. Open press conference to go back to your mind a little bit Mm -hmm. then. And then some of the pretty clear shifts that have happened from USDA since then, from sort of obvious ones, like we mentioned the wheelchair and then backtracking on that very quickly to the code of conduct stuff in which the, the in which uh, I feel like it's, I feel like it's a lot of ways a very a pre-Zverev and post-Zverev thing or at least a pre-Adria, <laughs> yeah. post-Adria. I think Zverev can probably get a lot of initial uh, individual credit for this, yeah. center it on his self. The yeah, code of conduct and other things about the US Open like and the entourages, I guess, also is a major thing. What you make about where the US Open started and where it is now as we get very close. I mean, we're recording this on Thursday and players will start playing matches in New York, I guess. On, is there qualifying there? I guess maybe that soon. In the, yeah, Cincinnati. So really soon. So I think that, yeah, players are arriving. I mean, I think this week, next week, this week, 15th. When is the 15th? Uh, in two days. Yeah, 15th. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's happening. <laughs> probably, maybe. It's probably definitely maybe happening. It's probably happening. I would put I would put it like a solid seventy five percent now in my mind, okay. which is I was I was at like thirty for a long time. Right. So it's like that election night meter that just swung the other direction. It's like whoa, this is now happening. I think that initial press conference, the tone did not surprise me at all. I mean, it was a little bit like a hype video. You know, it was literally yeah. had the Serena Williams hype video. You know, it's like this is happening. I'm so excited. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be great. She said that. She said it's going to be perfect. You know, I think that they were there to sort of make get everyone excited and make 
this make it clear their commitment to doing this. And I know that rubbed some people the wrong way because it seems sort of, you know, out of Strange. line with what was yeah. starting very clearly starting to happen in the United States with this kind of first wave had like slightly been receding and then I was shooting up again. You know, I think there was a lot like certainly in New York, things were a lot better. I think there were they had, they had reasons to be optimistic, but definitely I think that there was this kind of attitude that we need to show people that we're really mean this, you know, otherwise people are going to hold on to the fact that it's not. And and sometimes that narrative can take hold, you know, like if people really think it's not going to happen, they're not going to prepare for it and plan for it and commit yeah. to it. And you, you can see this in, te- in tennis with uh, the Prague entry list for the women. I don't know if you saw the Prague entry list, but basically like I'm guessing something along the lines of like 25 of the top 40 probably yeah. entered Prague. Yeah. And then as it looked more and more like what the USF was going to happen, like 20 of those yeah. people roughly pulled out of Prague because yeah. they, had, they had been like, here's my European clay exactly. you know, USF contingency plan. I don't have a lot of faith in USF happening, but now it's creeping along further and further. Like, oh, wait, this might actually happen. I might need to actually prepare for a hardcore Grand Slam. I'm going to pull out of Prague. I was pretty, what what shocked me at that, the US Open tournament was that they didn't really have, Stacey Alistair didn't really have an answer for your question, which I do quote in the piece, you know, which is like, basically, what are the consequences? Like, how real is this bubble? You know, are, are players going to be, you know, if they go on Tinder or go out to a restaurant in Manhattan or whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> are they going to, um, are they going to face consequences? And she was like, well, they might catch the virus and that should be, they should have a sense of responsibility toward each other. And you know, we all have to count on each other to take care of each other, which again, as we've discussed, has not exactly, that's not exactly how things have gone. (laughs) And, and, you know, in fairness, that's not how things have gone in this country either. So it's not just, it's not just tennis. And again, like that was part of the motivation of writing this piece. I felt like what was happening, this sort of things we're seeing is like, everybody sort of thinks they're doing the right thing or doing their own thing or whatever. It was like, seemed very reflective of many parts of life including people are doing things in good faith again like i don't think a lot of people think they're doing the wrong thing when they're you know no you know so like i do i do wonder with like the extreme cases like zverev like going out to that like party we, okay i have to think zverev knew he was doing something like dodgy there i have to think he knew yeah. that well fair but enough, like but... In, but in general like yes when people a lot of people in my mentions god knows for the last however many months have been like novak had only good intentions with adria tour like i i don't doubt that really. right again that but this is again like it's not i mean risk. what's in your it's heart not all is... about intentions. it's not all about intentions in life like, yeah, exactly. you can still be on your way to donate blood and you know hit a kid riding a tricycle with your car yeah. like, also if you i mean matter. part of the problem is that like if the rules aren't clear this is what we're learning you know from the president of the united states like if mm. there's confusion if there's mixed messaging then people basically interpret they sort of maybe naturally interpret it however they want to interpret it, whatever is like best for them is how they read the rule. And so the rules have to be really clear. You know, the rules have to be really, I mean, Donna Vekic got a lot of like kind of blowback for saying like, I went out, you know, to eat in Rome, but like, I assume she doesn't think she was like doing anything wrong. She just was following the rules. But she said there was no rule against it. So like, she was like, and she said in the US Open, if I go to US Open, I would be more I right, because there would be rule. But right, but here in right. Palermo, there's not, you know, a rule saying I have to, I can't go to a restaurant or, right. or Danielle, Instagram in front of a fountain in the city or whatever she was doing. And Danielle know. Collins, when she said, you know, oh, well, you know, she drove from West Virginia to Charlottesville to get health supplements. You know, her response was like kind of bafflement being like, well, this wasn't actually specifically listed on the waiver that I signed. So therefore, I didn't know that it was a problem, you know, like, yeah. I mean, and, and the sort of like, you you know, you're sort of like, well, what are you thinking? Like, of course, this is not, you know, within the 
the rules, but I think athletes and, you know, I think that people really apparently need specific clarity and a kind of real kind of sense of what the, the rules are and what the consequences are. And so I think the U S open also, I think that the USTA realized that as well. And, you know, reading the protocols was both like, it was a, it was a relief to me to see them, to be honest. I'm someone who doesn't actually like, I don't believe that we should be draconian in this universe. I think we actually should take care of each other, you know? Um, but at the same time I was like, yeah, it's, it's important that players know what's expected of them. And it's important that they know that this, they're serious. This is a real thing. I was thinking of you and of you being a much better writer than me when I was reading the rules and just sort of being and thinking about that same thing about how tennis players exist in this world where everything is very clearly in or out, right? They're very, it's a very right. black and white sport. You, you win, you make money, you lose, you don't make money. And this sort of, so this gray areas that I think were the Stacey Allister original vision right. of community responsibility of doing the right thing, which is not going to fly in tennis. Like right. you need to line these things out. And then you have people like Sloan Stevens in Lexington and her Zoom press conference, which I believe we were both at, saying, you know, really doesn't trust players to do things unless they're being watched. And, you know, talking about calling in the National Guard to be at the doors of the hotel, somewhat facetiously maybe, but also didn't seem like <laughs> she really had a lot of faith that people would do otherwise. And I And I'm fully with her there like I I you know I think the part about the private housing is kind of crazy the players have kind of hire their own prison guards yeah. to watch them that was uh, that was eye-opening to me well it was it was, I guess what I'm going to say with about that is I was really sh- surprised that they were going to allow that in the first place yeah it doesn't make sense like it didn't make sense that people could hire you know rent their own houses and I had only assumed that that was a major concession to to the Serena Williams of the world not not to say that this Serena no, Williams is going to she is I, I have found out Serena is actually renting a private house she is okay so I, I had yeah. I had kind of like told myself well this this rule is the Serena rule let's call it that like that you know there are certain people who are not going to be okay living in a hotel room at the marriott for three weeks and they have kids let's say and they have i don't know cooks or whatever and they are they have people that they they feel like they need in their lives and maybe they do and that that this is for them and but it has shocked me because you're not having a bubble if you have people running houses that's just not it and so i guess what they realize is that they it, you i guess you do have a i guess it is a kind of bubble if you actually are forcing them to pay for security to report on you i mean it's crazy but it is also like maybe that's the only thing that's going to work so good on them so i guess make a rule Absolutely. So what, what do you, what do you, we talked about 2021 a little bit, what it could look like in tennis and we're having a pretty incomplete rest of the season. Uh, even if everything that's on the calendar still goes off. Well, sure. let me put it that way. I think the outdoor events are gonna have a good shot. I am very dubious about the European indoor swing, which I believe is still on the men's calendar. And I think maybe WTA Moscow technically, even they don't have a venue, like what the rest of that's going to look like, but tennis could really end during the French open. And I guess, do you think that if, if that's the end of it, what should the priorities be for tennis during the off season? If if you could be, if you were the sort of imagined commissioner, what would okay, you? If I were my, if of, I were the imagined if, commissioner, yeah, I would what, probably. What would you, you you could. I would support your candidacy if you ever want to throw your hat in the ring. Uh, what would you? What would you want to have tennis achieve? If you could make wave some sort of wand and have it achieve, what would you? What would you want the tennis to do before it comes back? I would definitely be looking at much greater collaboration. I mean, that would be a much, a pretty obvious thing, especially between the men and the women and the different tournaments. Um, I would probably, I mean, it's hard because I'm in some ways, I'm glad I'm not commissioner because I think, (laughs) I think probably the, the, the realistic, like 
if I were commissioner, basically there would be just a lot more money in tennis. <laughs> if I mean, I, if I were commissioner, I could just wave a wand, you know, because I think that there's going to be some really, really, really hard decisions being made about what is going to be viable going forward. I don't know if all these tournaments can survive. I don't know what the challenger tournament can, you know, tour can look like. Yeah. I don't know how big the tours can be. I don't know how many mixed doubles events there can be. I think there should be more in my world, more mixed doubles in the world. in Mi- which, Mixed like, doubles is another thing that like uh, of us open cancellations. Why cancel mixed? It's like the smallest yeah. <laughs> draw. Why do that? I don't get that. But you know, again, like in, in my world, there's, there's not the, there are not these financial challenges that tennis is definitely going to have to face. So, and a lot of the things that I would like are expensive. So that's, that's why I'm glad I'm not commissioner and I'm sitting here throwing stones. No, um, I think though that there should be much, I think that people should come together and say like, look, we are all going to have to give up something right now, you know, and like, let's get together and, and actually kind of maybe put aside our, put aside our individualism a little bit and think about like, what can we do? Can we do more round robin events? I think that's a great idea. Can we do more, more mixed doubles? Can we do more regional events? You know, can we do, um, change the calendar so that there's less like flying from Moscow to Acapulco to Dubai or whatever, you know, just to sort of make it okay, especially for lower rank players, you know, if nothing else make, make it so that you can live in one place and play, you know, tournaments like that. Yeah. <laughs> like some of the things that the U S open are doing I, is doing, I think that they should encourage across the board so that there's more access for, I don't actually know what it's like, to be honest, like this sort of like beefed up physio and stringing and, you know, some of the services that they're going to be offering everybody because not everybody can bring their full complement of teams. Like, just to make sure that, you know, there's more kind of access to some of the things that make tennis like very unequal in the first place. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the, I think that the federation structure is like, I understand why it exists. I think it's kind of a problem. You know, I think that there's, there should be more, you know, if we're going to be a global sport, we should, they should decide basically, they should either make it more regional or make it more global and then make sure that the fruits are more evenly distributed if it's that way. That was one of the things, honestly, that really excited me about the original entourage rule of one person. It was going to be a great equalizer. Yeah. It'd be like, you don't have Novak or Serena or whoever the other, Rafa, whoever the big, big, the haves in tennis. You know, mm-hmm. Having somebody carry their bag, having somebody make their drinks for them, having somebody, you know, you know, grip their rackets for them, having somebody lace their shoes for them, having somebody apply sunscreen to their outstretched arm, which is a thing you do see on practice courts. You've seen someone holding out their arm and having someone else rub sunscreen on it. Like, it's... um it's uh, it's something that I would have loved to see, like how they would cope with that. And, you know. and I would also make four tournaments a year only. Okay. It would be in New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, everyone would come. I mean, New Zealand would ever go for it, which is why they're why they're good. <laughs> but and we'd have a great time, or they would have a great time. I would unfortunately not benefit because I would be watching on a bad time zone and going into Zoom conferences. It'd be miserable for me, but it would be good for tennis. <laughs> last, last sort of question for you. Um, in terms, well, actually, two more things. Let me do this one first. In terms of Lexington again, we didn't mention, you mentioned in your piece, the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. logo s- slogan, which is on the backdrop of Lexington. Yeah. Which is very striking. Like you said, it's pretty innocuous in daily life in America. Now you see this kind of all the time everywhere and a lot of corporate environments too. Definitely opened my eyes though. Yeah, but in tennis, yeah. it looked so jarring because tennis has been so not socially awakened, whatever the opposite of woke is, I guess, in tennis. Like, tennis is not that. As much as tennis does have a lot of great virtues, especially about gender inclusion 
and relative equality, not perfect, but better than a lot of places in terms of gender equality for payment. Tennis has not been socially progressive on a lot of things at all, really, since the Village and King days in, in terms of institutionally, right? It did actually and, make me think. I was like, oh, what can we do at Margaret Court Arena during Australian Open yeah. <laughs> matches? So, like, for the first, and so, like, there, that was a really striking thing. Um, I noticed for the first, uh, I was talking to other people about this, for the first time, in its existence. I mean, like WCA the last two years maybe has done like a rainbow logo during Pride Month, which was very big step for them. They hadn't done any of that. Obviously, the the, the veiled, you know, threat of, of overarching lesbianism in women's tennis has been a, a sort of monster in the closet, pun intended, for them for a long time. And and similar for the men, I think the men for the first time ever, like ATP, like acknowledged that homosexuality exists this, uh, this year. They had like an interview they did on Tennis United show with like Brian Vahaley, who's like one of the very few out gay players uh, right now in tennis, or at least officially confirmed out, however you want to phrase that. And could and should there have been a social awakening in tennis? It's one of the benefits from this. And we see certainly like, if you look at what younger players like Sloan, all the way obviously down to Osaka and Coco Golf have been doing with their time during this time. Like if, if Coco and Osaka, which I think a lot of people are going to be, you know, torchbearers for the WTA for the next 10 years, like they're going to have a very, uh, very different vocal stance on this. Like I, it was striking, very striking to me comparing the way that Coco and even Serena answered the questions that they got in Kentucky this week about Brianna Taylor Mm-hmm. And Coco was just seems so much more comfortable with that topic yeah. or just about being spoken out where Serena really was, you know, supportive, but also at the same time, very kind of halting and hesitant in a lot of ways in how she was talking about it. And whereas Coco sounded a lot more like the rest of the world as we hear it now, a lot more like WNBA, a lot more like other athletes who are more and more comfortable with this. And I'm curious if tennis is moving towards that to a more institutional comfort with these sorts of things. It's a, it's a really interesting question and it's going to be um, an interesting one going forward. It's also, you know, I think it's significant that it it was a W it's a W uh, sorry, WTA event that's doing it as Mm -hmm. opposed to an ATP event. I mean, I have a harder time imagining an ATP event, putting black lives matter, you know, and the event in Atlanta or Houston or whatever, you know? Um, But maybe, maybe, I mean, that's, I think it, I I thought it was really striking and, and, Preston, I think it does speak to the fact that, you know, in Lexington, there is Venus and Serena and Sloan and Coco. I mean, that the, the WTA has a really, you know, and Maddie, and there are these really young, impressive, and young and old, you know, impressive African-American black women from the United States. And and it has a really strong, you know, as I was thinking about this, you know, we, we take for granted that tennis is very white because it is. But it has a really strong, you know, progressive racial tradition too, you know. So yeah. I think that there is a lot to build on, just as there is in terms of gender equality. And so I think that, you know, there's certainly an opening there. But um, but again, like as we've seen, it is also a global sport where people don't know. It's, you know, it's not really realistic to expect a player from Eastern Europe to sort of understand the legacy of Jim Crow, you know. I mean, it's just yeah. like... You know, at the same time, like the fact that these conversations are in as far as they are happening, um, it's a good thing, you know. And so, you know, for for one of those players to have to look at the back of the court and be like, well, what's that? Um, And then to learn about it. And I mean, that's that's the hope. Right. And the more kind of the more people like Coco also who are inviting these conversations and sort of using her platform to educate people. And yeah, I mean, but again, like it's an individual sport. It's not there's no 
I mean, the WTA is doing, I guess, is stepping up in this case, but there's, it, it's not a sport with a really kind of like strong tradition of, except in its inception, you know, collective action. Thank you very much, Louisa, for being on here. I want to give you a chance at the end here to plug your new book. Oh, yes. Your, your latest in your collect, in your growing Louisa Thomas library, which you've co-edited with our friend Mary uh, about losers who, as we talked about, half of the players go to the U.S. Open yes. will be first-round losers. And Losers is the perfect book for tennis 70, fans. 75% will be first two-round losers. So yeah. talk about losers and what made you want to have a book about losers, which is fast. I've always been really interested in losers. So talk um, about losers and why you made this your next book. So Later. we have uh, Losers, which is an essay collection, and it's a mix of some new essays from kind of a really big range of writers, most of them a little bit unknown, but um, novelists and poets and also sports writers and things like that. But, um, and then some sort of like classics, like Gay Talese's great essay about boxing loser, my curious piece who's in there. <laughs> but, um, and there's a tennis player on the cover because tennis is like the true sport of losers, right? Only one player wins and everybody else is a loser. But I've always been interested in the sort of, I'm sort of more interested in often the the person who's standing next to the winner than I am in the winner. Um, because I think the idea of like people put so much into something and put so much hope and so much work. And again, what are the stakes, you know, like what do they come away with it at the end? Like, what are they doing it for? And what happens when it doesn't work out exactly as they dreamed? I mean, we approached it, basically we wanted to define losers as widely as possible. So there's an essay on LeBron James, you know, Big loser. Um, there's essays on, you know, people who were really bad at sports when they were kids. Or there's an essay on Boston. There's an essay on Philadelphia. You know, it's like losers down. And some of them are funny and some of them are really sad and um, sort of everything in between. Yeah, so basically it's it's comprehensive enough to include all of us, I would say. <laughs> Got to say, yeah, no, losers are I super, as someone who's often been a loser in life in various different ways. Like lo- winners are not interesting because they're a person for, for whom everything went to plan, right? Yeah. You know, like everyone can prepare for being a winner pretty much more. I mean, I was thinking unattended fame or whatever, unexpected fame but in consequence of that. But generally, you go to a tournament or go on, you know, in my most recent example, like a game show like Jeopardy when I was on with the attention. Like, yeah, I w- would be fine with winning. Like winning does not scare me per se. Yeah. And then you lose and you just sort of grapple with all of that. Yeah, entails. your face, there's this great quote in this case, Lee's piece, it's... Um... You know, when you're when you're a loser, you're you're faced with who you are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no, definitely that's that's definitely right. And so I yeah, tennis is is certainly. You mentioned Curious. I'm, I, I'm, I kind of want to circle back to Curious very quickly here. Sure. Uh, Nick has had. I don't think he's really in your New Yorker piece at all, but he has had an interesting quarantine period. Sort Except of. Except being... Matt Reed's coach. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's Matt Reed's coach. That's right. Um, he's had an interesting quarantine period. It's sort of being seen more and more as. The quote unquote voice of reason in tennis. Yeah. Which a lot of oh, and I also got major... that wrong. Matt Reed was his coach. I'm sorry. That's right. Yes. Yeah, of course. And he's a double partner who often gets wild cards. Basically, sort of where you refer to him also. Yeah. But I'm curious what you make of of this. If someone has also profiled Curios for the New York, we've talked about Curios a lot. Obviously, we both had our own experience with Curios. What you make of Curios's personal arc during this time and. I mean, I don't, I'll, I'll start with my own brief take. Like, I don't think he's really doing anything that different than he has before. I just think that, like, his ethos as someone who's in his own way 
not the same sort of self-centered as yeah. the, as the prototypical, prototypical tennis player looks a lot more appealing to people right now. I mean, I think that's, ex- I think in a way that's exactly right. I think he's actually a little bit more consistent than people are giving him credit for. I mean, he's always been open about the fact that he prefers to be on a team. You know, he doesn't want to be the person. And maybe he doesn't even like, I mean, not to get into psycho babble, which everybody does when I talk about Curios, but maybe he doesn't even really like himself when he's, <laughs> you know, faced with himself, as we put it. And it's better to be, you know, better to be the guy who's supporting other people and thinking of other people and, yeah, and not facing yourself. And I think that right now it's been a pretty... I also think that, you know, one thing I talked to Matt about, and he was pretty kind of... The Australian players are quite close and they talk a lot and they're, you know, travel together a lot and um, live on the road. They're sort of their their family, you know, when they're on the road. And I think a lot of them... Matt was saying was have really kind of appreciated this time to be home, you know, probably even the ones who really love being on the road, you know, who love traveling the world, like they get to be with their families and they get to be among their countrymen and women and they get to have relationships. And I was struck by that, by by Matt saying like, who would have thought I have a girlfriend? And it really does speak to the disruption of your life. Yeah, exactly. They have pets or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, probably this is like curious. I mean, I've long thought like he should take six months off the tour, you know, that would be really good for him. And here he's got it, you know, and what's he going to do with it? And also like his combative side has totally come out also like he's not like any different in that regard. He's picking fights, you know, he's enjoying sparring with people and being a jerk in certain ways, but also prodding people to sort of think beyond themselves, even as he's doing it. And so that's kind of, um, in some ways, I'm not sure there's so much of an evolution, except that to me, and one of the reasons I wanted to write that piece is that he always did raise the question of a different path for somebody. Like, to what extent do you have a responsibility to to just focus on winning, you know, and focus yeah. on yourself? And to what extent, like, is it okay to just kind of want to entertain people and you know, and he seemed really unhappy doing it and want to be happy. You know, I, I hope this is a good period for him because, you know, I wish people well and, you know, that he'll come, he'll come back to tennis or not, you know, with a different kind of, maybe he'll come back to a different kind of tennis. It, it, it's just fascinating when you frame it as the way we start this episode, that um, so many of the complaints about Kyrgios and tennis establishment can be framed as him not being self-centered enough. Yeah, I said like he's not a hard enough worker for his own goals, or he's self. You know, he's he self. I mean, but max- but it comes across as him being selfish, right? Like his right. laziness well, is a kind of selfishness. In some ways, but-, but it's in some ways not right. right. That he's right. not so completely devoted to making himself the best at all times. Yeah, and it's his own sort of counterintuitive in tennis, definitely value maybe to have that again in this tough time. I think he's just wired very differently than a lot of tennis players and. We're seeing some bad of that, obviously, and, and obviously we've seen it in the past. You talk about his mean streak, for sure, is very much there. But his, uh, his yeah, his sort of openness to people and why... And there's a real... Gen- everyone you real. talk to about it's him... Real. Yeah, everyone you talk to him will say that there is a real generosity streak. Alongside the mean streak, there is a real kind of genuine spirit of generosity to him, too. So thank you for your spirit of generosity, for giving us all your time here, and for this wonderful piece that you've done. Um, I look forward to seeing you in Zooms uh, many times during the next month or so, and plus French Zooms coming up. Gosh, I mean, there's going to be a lot of, it's an interesting sort of world. It, I, I'm, yeah, it's an inter- I'm just curious, less sort of, I keep saying last thing, but like, 
I'm having trouble, and this obviously I think has to do with the stakes of Lexington and of mm-hmm. Palermo before that. And I think hopefully I can get it to be different during US Open if I need when I need to, because I think I will need to, of like really dialing into these tournaments, of like actually like kind of getting like um we were talking about this with um with Timani, I think, and Reem on the last episode, where just like when you're usually at a tournament, you are at the tournament mm-hmm. in body and mind and spirit. And like you are there. And now we're not gonna be at tournaments physically. And so it's just going to be a much bigger remove for us to be at home, you know, walking the dog between sets or whatever. Like, it's a whole different attitude to have towards covering a a beat right now and and covering a sport. And it's so unimmersive. It's funny because I, like, I mean, I felt this immediately when Serena Williams' first press conference was like, she bumped it up. And I'm... I get the emails, yeah, but not the yeah. text. I missed it. Like I just was like I I, I like logged I, on at noon and I was, was like that was gonna be one of my feedbacks to to WTA for this stuff. I was like you can't bump stuff up earlier because usually the players <laughs> running ahead of schedule they'll come to press ten minutes early. And it's like oh no big deal. Usually hopefully you're at your, sometimes you still do miss things on site, right? But hopefully you're at your desk and you can just get up a little earlier and reshift things. Like here. You have to, like, if you say a time, it can really not come before that time. Yeah, I was, I, I was little, not in yeah. the house. I was, you know. No. So, but I mean, I, I'm actually used to, I'm I'm sort of someone who dips into tournaments. Right. <laughs> I'm very used to covering things remotely. So welcome to my world. And I've actually, I'm going to, here, I'm going to make a plug for remote coverage. Um, which is that I actually think that you can get very sucked into the minutiae of an event when you're on site because it's all happening around you and it all seems like very urgent and Mm. pressing. And I find that like, I like to have both. I mean, I think that there's a going to be a great loss in the coverage. I mean, I think there's no way around it. Like, like you said, there is a kind of like urgency and sense of immersion and you just hear things and you learn things and you see things that you just are not going to when you're on zoom and on watching on TV. But for me, it kind of actually helps like keep a sense of the bigger picture to not be there and not kind of get sucked into like whatever thing is happening right in front of me at that time. And I also find that I watch more tennis when I'm not there <laughs> on, t- on TV because when I'm there, I'm like, oh, I got to go to this person. I'm going to go to this person's press conference and then I'm going to go get a snack and then I'm going to like, you know, watch like five screens, but like not like watch a couple tournaments at once or a couple matches at once on the, you know, screens switching around and stuff. And, and when I'm at home, I can actually like do a little bit better job of just focusing on one thing and trying to like make myself less responsible for multitasking. So that's like one of the reasons why. And I think I, yeah, I think it helps me a little bit kind of like shut out the noise. And part of my job in general is to like contextualize things a little bit and not get lost in the noise and sort of be able to like, just watch some, like see something. And so it helps me a little bit to have some distance, but I've always, I've had this like immense privilege of being able to do both. And I know that, if I had to choose, it would be better just to be there. But, you know, it's 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 going to be weird, you know. It's going to be weird. It's going to be weird. It's been weird. It's going to stay weird for a while. You should um, probably cut this off. But, like, I'm really curious to hear about what you think about the, the camera angles in this exhibition time. Oh, I think I think they've been um, relatively unimaginative. Uh-huh. I, well, I, I, I say that because... The Charleston event, I think, actually had some interesting ones. And I'm yeah. watching the Charleston. But they were clearly, like, putting people with, like, handheld cameras, like, where seats would normally be. Yeah. And different spots and different yeah. angles. And I was like, that seems good. Whereas 
other events are like I don't think Lexington's camera angle is very good. I think it's too low or something. I agree. Like that. Yeah. Well, and it can, it's and it too showing the road actually. behind it, which is, it would be yeah. good if it were like properly low. Right. Yeah. If, if it's an up, like, see the... I'm not going to grade Lexington too harsh because they had like four weeks, but this tournament together. <laughs> so I'm not going to be like too much. Like your sight lines are unideal, even though they are. Um, <laughs> but uh, I hope the U.S. Open does some like. I hope they do a lot of. I hope they okay. I hope they make it. I think the U. NHL, and I'll leave all this in because why not? But like, I think NHL has done a good job of like making it seem like big empty arenas, mm-hmm. which is what they are, right? They covered up the seats, like you, you're hit right away with why there's no one behind the glass. It's empty, it's big, and there's like big screens, like huge video displays where there normally would be people. I would love to see US Open do something like that, like cover up, and I really could not just leave empty, but cover up right. the entire lower seating bowl of ash. Make it clear. If you want to have coaches, put them like in the suites level or something around yeah. the outside, like up, like so. There's a distance. So people really are struck by this is not normal. Uh, I think that's been really useful for NHL. Whereas like NBA looks super crowded and kind of messy. Their the rooms that they're in, they're just like always video screens everywhere and like people sitting weird parts behind the benches, kind mm-hmm. of. And just I don't know. Every, everything's kind of piled on top of each, each other. Like yeah, I get used to it. It's a weird thing. But here's one thing. So my idea is that they should lean. They should actually really lean into the idea that tennis players are like lonely agents out there by themselves. And this like imagine like the visual of Ash. You know, like get cover it up. Like make make them the only people on earth. You know, <laughs> I'm into that. Yeah, no, make it make it like super. Yeah, make them like small, tiny people in this. Exactly. Like, thing. I mean, I think there's something. I think actually that there would be like a real pathos in that. Like, I think there would be like a kind of really amazing, like gladiatorial, like battle between the two last people standing on earth. Yeah. No, my my thing, and obviously, crowd noise is a different topic than the visual. But like, I do think that like leaning into the current moment like the honesty of this moment and mm-hmm. even if it's like baseball doing silly things with like the cutouts the cutouts obviously look you can tell they're not real people yeah um and they're sort of whimsical in that way but like i you know don't make it seem like i don't know like like it's normal like don't do too i don't love like the cuts like fans watching at home that i've seen on some broadcasts like i don't need that like you know just make it like we're playing in a weird place and we're in a weird souped up tv set in orlando or whatever this is yeah. and just, just be, yeah, yeah. Make it, make it honest, and make it true to the moment as much as you can. I do hope, though, that you said, like, I hope that they play around with the camera angles because I think that a lot of people are used to seeing tennis from like ten thousand feet, and I think that people will actually really kind of like appreciate the sport in a different way if they can yeah. see some different. If there are angles that can really kind of expose the different trajectories that the ball is taking yeah. and spins and speeds and things like that, like it could be a it could put, be a great chance. Put cameras in the front row of the seating bowl, basically where they yeah. normally wouldn't be, and just have that because those are great seats to watch. Yeah, exactly. Front, right behind the bit, like yeah, those are amazing. As having been there a few times, especially like late night sessions in Washington or something where it's totally empty, like two a.m. I mean, late. Yeah. And so yeah, no reason not to do that and to, to shake things up a little bit. Yeah. We'll see. It's a lot. It's a lot of opportunity in the in the chaos mm-hmm. for sure to be had, and I'm curious to see what people will uh, will make of it. And thank you again. I'll wrap up, try to wrap up for like a fourth time. Thank you again <laughs> for for sharing your time and for taking this opportunity to to synthesize everything in tennis so nicely. This will be a very good document for future people trying to understand what the heck was going on in the world. So thank you once more to Louisa for coming on NCR to talk about this piece, which I know she's been working on for a long time. I've enjoyed chatting with Louisa about its various progress over the course of the past several months, and very glad it's out in the world, and she did a great job with it. So there are links to the piece in the description of the show, and there's also links, or link of each, to where you can buy her book, Losers with Mary Pallon, co-editing. 
and I think you'll really enjoy it. It makes a great gift for somebody who's just stuck inside and doesn't have much to do. Send your Corin friends a gift of, of reading and literature, and in this time when we're all feeling different kinds of defeated, I think it's actually, in its own way, a very touching thing to do for people. So thank you again to Louisa, and thank you guys for listening. Thank you especially to our Patreon backers. We thank every show. Our new Patreon backer this week to announce is Rowan Weckert, who I'm very excited is with us. Rowan has been a uh, longtime supporter of NCR, and we see him in, so I'm in Adelaide most recently. When the tour swung by there, that's where he's from. So great to see Rowan joining our Patreon. Thank you, Rowan. And thank you, as always, to our Slam Champ level backers. We thank on every show. They are Liz Kinnell, Betty Chuang Nguyen, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Susanna W., Joseph Har, and Audrey Wellens, as well as our GOAT backer, J.O.D. If you want to follow on the show and you're not listening, obviously the best, best way to do that is on Patreon, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. We're rolling out all sorts of new, well, not all sorts, but a good decent amount of exclusive content on there, including our Codenames games we played with Anjabur and Rima Balail. Those are a lot of fun. Check those out. And other video and audio exclusive content there, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining is where to find that. And we have, gosh, now that it looks like Grand Slams are going to happen, we'll have lots of Grand Slam content there too. It's going to be it's going to be nuts. Uh, so check that out. Also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis and send us emails, questions, comments to no challenges remaining at gmail.com. We will see you next time. Keep on winning out there, folks. Bye.